dedicated by uh, the Bestamsky family, Izzy Bestamsky, and this is in honor of his grandfather, Rabbi Yisrael. And uh, as of now, I don't have his father's name. He told it to me today, and I thought I had it written down, but I didn't, and then I, whatever it is, may his, may his grandfather, Rabbi Yisrael Bestamsky, um, have a great aliyah. His neshama, his uh, yartite is on the 6th of Kislev, which is tomorrow night. May this shir uh, carry his neshama to the greatest of heights and channel lots of brachas down to him and to his family for only good mazal and bracha for him and for all the Bistamskis. Um The shir this week was also dedicated, and so was all the classes at Mayon happening during the week. Tonight and tomorrow night there's a class for a group, and then there is a Thursday night and a Thursday day, and all the classes we learn in the morning and all the uh, Shabbos classes. So it's all dedicated by um, Yol Peso, who's the sponsor of the week. Big Yashikayach to him. This is in honor of his birthday, also on the 6th of Kislev. Hashem bless him with a very, very special year. Shnaz bracha natzlacha, mazel and bracha and everything. Um, all that you need and all that you want, all that you wish for yourself, may Hashem bless you with incredible abundance in everything. Thanks for all those who have dedicated. The CD particularly um, is still available for anybody that would like to sponsor it. Um, the schus of all the about 500 people every week that listen to the class on the CD. Um, if anybody's interested, you can let me know after the class or you can let me know later. Um, as happened in the past, it can be claimed retroactively. Okay. Um, tonight is this week is Parshas Vayetze it's a very inspiring Parsha a very powerful Torah portion uh, with a lot of rich lessons so much to learn so much to uh, to, to um, identify with in this story um, briefly the Torah tells us that Yaakov went down, he's escaping his brother's wrath, 
and uh, he runs and he flees to Mesopotamia, to Haran, um, running away from Esau, and also because his parents tell him that it's time to get married. He's already 64 years old at that time, or 63 years old. On the way, he stops for 14 years just to prepare himself for the challenges ahead, and he studies. By the time he gets there, he's 77 years old. It's really time to get married, especially since the man who is going to be the father, he has to father still 12 children, 13 children. So uh, there's a lot to do. And um, so Yaakov goes down to Haran. It's a very hostile and um, uh, a, very, a very dangerous place for a Jew to be. It is, it is um, a place of a lot of corruption. And to make matters worse, Yaakov is going to be hosted by his uncle Lavan. Now his uncle Lavan is a notorious cheater, liar, a world-famous con artist. And Yaakov is going to spend his time in Haran by Uncle Lavan's house. Um, now, when Yaakov goes down to... He doesn't have anything. He comes as a pauper. All he has is he's armed with God's blessing. Hashem appeared to him in the famous dream when he sees the ladder. And God appeared to him and he said, I'm going to protect you and guard over you. I'm going to take care of you. And besides that, he doesn't have anything. He hardly has his clothing on his back. Because on the way, when he ran, his brother sent his son, which is Yaakov's nephew, Eliphaz, um, to murder Yaakov. But they kind of negotiated this thing. And uh, he agreed to let him live, but he took away all of his possessions. And didn't leave him a thing. Didn't leave him, leave him even one quarter in his pocket. So Yaakov arrives to Haran, a literally penniless, only with a stick, a staff in his hand and his clothing on his back. Um, and here's an amazing story. The amazing story is that against all odds, Yaakov is very successful. He prospers. I mean, what were the, with all the cards stacked against him? I mean, what are the chances? for him even to survive the hostilities in Haran. Not only that, and, and, and then yet the chances for him to be successful and to prosper. Zero. Yet, yet that, but that's the quintessential story of the Jewish people. That against all odds in every situation, even when there is all the predictions will be that, that you know, it's, it's impossible to contend with the situation, Yet we always somehow come up, come out on the top. And that's what happens. Yaakov arrives, um, and he leaves. He spends 20 years in Haran, and he comes home far richer than he was. He comes home far better off than he was when he came. He did very, very, very well. First of all, he got married. Not once, four times. He had four wives. Then he had a family of 12 children that were born to him. 11 boys and one girl. His 12th son is going to be born later, but 11 of the tribes were born. And despite the influences, the corruption, that they're living by Grandpa Lavan's house, and he was very, stuck his nose into everything. He was very, very much present
Yet Yaakov managed to create a beautiful family. He did far better than his parents did and his grandparents, even though they were in a less hostile place. You know, Avram and Yitzchak both had a one wicked son. They had one tzaddik, one wicked son. Yaakov comes back with a beautiful family, Kulam Ahuvim, they're all beloved, Kulam Berurim, they're all, they're all refined, they're all tzaddikim, this is the foundation of the Jewish people. So against every prediction, Yaakov is successful. And then, materially also, he prospers, he's a wealthy man, he comes back a millionaire. The Torah describes the great enormous wealth that Yaakov amassed in the house of Lavan. After 20 years of being there, Yaakov realizes the time has come. God has kept all of his promises to him. He has his family, he has his wives, his children. He even has enormous wealth. It's time for him to come back home. He made a promise to God that when he comes back to the land of Israel, he would... um, offer up sacrifices on the altar. He would tithe all that he owns. He has to go back to his elderly parents. He was actually punished for the 20 years, 22 years, the time it took him till he got all the way back. It took him two years on the road until he managed to get back home. Um, he gets punished for, not ta- for being away from his mother and not fulfilling the mitzvah. F- mother and father not fulfilling kibbutz. The aim, so Yaakov... And knows that as long as it was determined from above that he has to be in Haran, he has to be over there, but now it's time to go back home. So he calls his wives, his primary wives, Rachel and Leah, and he has a meeting with them outside in the field. That itself tells you how dangerous Lavan's house was that Yaakov could not have a private conversation with them without being afraid that, they, that the walls have ears. That Lavan probably bugged the walls. And that he, he, he... So Yaakov has to take them out into a field in seclusion. And over there he has this private conversation in which he tells them that it's time to go. They agree... And they, they say, of course, we're ready to leave with you. We have nothing left in our father's house. Our father, all he did to us was constantly cheat us. And he sold us into marriage, even though we wanted him to marry you. But he, on his part, sold us for the work of, 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 of you, you know, your labor. And therefore, we have no reason to stay. We're willing to come with you. But now the problem is, how are they going to leave? What's the problem? Lavan, they knew... His father-in-law, Lavan, was never going to agree that they should leave. For two reasons. Number one, Yaakov brought great blessing to Lavan when he came. Um, when he came, Lavan, till then, Lavan only had daughters, didn't have any sons. And then sons were born to him. He also brought um, great prosperity, wealth to Lavan. That's number one. Secondly, in the last couple of years, Yaakov managed to extract all that wealth from Lavan, and it became Yaakov's. Now even though, again, Lavan tried to, it was, it was all a miracle. God kept, because Lavan is an enormous cheater. Yaakov managed to get all that money through honest life, uh, living. He made Lavan said to him, you know, 
tell me what your payment, what would be your salary for all the work that you've done to me. And Yaakov said, um, well, let's, let's figure something out. And they made a deal, whatever the deal was, that the sheep that would be born so-and-so would be mine. And Lavan kept on changing the deal from the speckled to the spotted sheep to this kind of sheep and that kind of sheep, the ankle ring sheep. Look, the Torah goes through a whole bunch of... He changed the deal a hundred times. But every time he wanted to cheat Yaakov, the tables were turned on him. He had a whole, Yaakov had a whole group of angels helping him out. And everything was maneuvered for Yaakov's favor. So Yaakov made a killing. Lavan was very angry at this point, feeling that Yaakov cheated him and took all of his money. So they knew that, 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 that Yaakov knew that Lavan would never let him leave. So therefore, they knew that they have to escape. So they waited until Lavan went out of town. He went to shear the wool of his sheep. He was away at a three-day distance. And Yaakov packed his bags overnight, and they disappeared. Him, all of his, all of his, 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 his wives, his children, his maidservants, and they had a huge, uh, by that time it was, a, it, was a, it was a very, it was a whole caravan. And they left Lavan's house on the way back to the land of Israel. Doesn't take long for Lavan to find out, word comes to him, that his son-in-law and his children, his daughters and his grandchildren escaped. So Lavan comes after Yaakov in hot pursuit. Doesn't take him long to catch up with him because Yaakov is going with cattle and sheep and little children and a whole. And Lavan and his men are galloping on horses. So within a very short period of time, he catches up with Yaakov. When he finally encounters him, his intentions were to destroy Yaakov completely. To completely massacre the family. How do we know that? It says, on the Pesach by the Agat, I mean, when we say Pesach by night, we, we describe Lavan as being worse than Pharaoh. Paro, we say, only wanted to kill the males. And Lavan wanted to kill everybody, male and female. So you see, here you see the intense wickedness of Lavan, that he was going to kill his own daughters. He was going to kill his own grandchildren. That was his intentions. If not for God interfering, the night before Lavan actually caught up with Yaakov, he had a dream, a frightening dream, in where God comes to Lavan and he warns him. And he says, don't you dare mess with Yaakov. So when hearing God's warning, he was afraid. So when he finally meets up with him, they have a debate, they have a heated debate. You can see there's, there's a lot of anger going on between the two of them as they argue it out. And then Lavan accuses Yaakov for stealing some of his, his uh, stuff. Um, Lavan had idols. Rachel, Yaakov's daughter, stole the idols. She, she took it because she wanted to prevent her father she felt bad for her father for being an idolater. So therefore she decided to take those idols with her. Um, unbeknown to Yaakov that she took it. Lavan does a search, and thank God he couldn't find it. So he didn't find it, and then, and then okay. So they decide that they're going to make a peace treaty. They're going to you know, work things out. 
So they had a little meal together, they broke bread. And then that night, Lavan, they both camped together on this mountain called Gilad. They also built a little monument of stones in which they, in which they um, solidified their treaty. I will not cross this, we will not cross this mound of stones to harm each other. Okay? And then the next morning it says, Lavan wakes up early in the morning. He's got business to do, he's got to go back home. He wakes up early, early in the morning. He kisses his family. That's what it says. By Yanashik Lavan, Lavan kissed his sons, which means his grandsons, Ubenosav and his daughters. He says goodbye. He goes back home. And then it says, Yaakov Halach Ladarko. Yaakov continues on his way and he continues to the land of Israel. This is a synopsis of the story of this week's Torah portion. What I would like to talk about tonight is this last part of the story of this chase that Lavan chases after Yaakov. What is the purpose of this chase? I mean, on Lavan's part, it's very simple. He was, he was ticked off that Yaakov left him with all of his wealth. So therefore, he's angry, especially things, even since Rachel ran away with his toolbox. He was a great magician. And these, and these um, idols that she took were part of his tools, instruments of sorcery. So he was very angry that this is what happened. That's why he gives chase. He wants revenge, whatever. So that's on, the, on, on Lavan's calculation. But we want to know in terms of, for Yaakov, for the ultimate story of Yaakov and his family, why did this have to happen? You see, Yaakov coming to Haran, we understand. He needs to get married. He needs to, that's where his future brides were. And that's where he was going to build a family. And that's where he was going to be, get the blessing of wealth that God had promised him. So that was all destined to come in Haran, for whatever reason. The question is, however, the second part of the story. Lavan gives wealth, gives chase. There is a frightening moment. Yaakov is afraid for his life. God saves Yaakov. But what was the purpose of this whole chase? From a higher perspective, why did this need to happen? What is there to gain from this? Lavan leaves. Okay, he runs after him. Then he couldn't do anything and he left. So what was the lasting effect of this encounter between Yaakov and Lavan? Now, on the simplest of levels, on the simple interpretation, you can explain that this is part of God showing Yaakov how much he's protecting him. That even though you have this gangster coming after him, and they're called coming you know, after him, and, they, and they're a very, very dangerous group, and their intentions were to do terrible things to Yaakov and his family, yet God saves him. So that's a, that's a great thing. Of course, Yaakov is to learn to trust in Hashem. That's, of course, on a simple level. That which we gain from this, that which Yaakov gained from this, from this event, from this occurrence in his life. But is there something more to it that was really going on under under, beneath the surface. Well, what is really going on over here in this chase? Another thing we should notice is that the last thing it says that Lavan did is that he kissed his, his children and his grandchildren. I'm sure Lavan did many things. He woke up in the morning and he brushed his teeth and he took a shower and he, and he maybe shaved. I don't know what Lavan did. He did a lot of things. 
It's very nice that he kissed his family goodbye. Maybe that shows a change of heart. Yesterday he wanted to murder them all, and today he's kissing them. Okay, we can say so. But really, think about it. The Torah doesn't just tell us stories. The Torah is telling us that Lavan kissed his family, it's like, it's, and that's like the, the climax of the entire parsha. That's where the parsha ends. And then Lavan leaves, and Yaakov leaves. There must be something deeper to this kiss that Lavan kisses his family goodbye. So what's going on over here? So there is a fascinating teaching by the Magid of Mizrich, the chief disciple of the Holy Balshemtov, the Rebbe of all the Hasidim. Reb Dov of Mizrich, whose yard site is going to be in two weeks from now, on the nineteenth of Kislev, um, has a an incredible, unique insight, which of course is an angelic kind of an insight, heavenly insight, that just a human being who reads the Torah portion with just human eyes would not be able to see, but someone like the Magid, a mystic, a tzaddik like the Magid was able to retrieve and see this great, great, great light in the Torah. This teaching is not written in the book of the Magid called Or Torah, but rather it's, it's recorded in the Sefer called Or Hameir, which is a book by Reb Zev Wolf of Zitamir, one of the initial colleagues of the Magid, and then I think he was also a student of the Magid, one of the students of the Baal Shem Tov. In his Sefer, he quotes a teaching from the Magid, which is really fascinating. And he says like this, that when Yaakov went down to Haran, the business that Yaakov was going to do in Haran, in Mesopotamia, by Uncle Lavan, was the work that we are all doing in this world. And that is the work of purifying and elevating a dark place. That's what it's all about. We're all living in a very dark world, a world fraught with challenges, with difficulties, a world that is not hospitable to holiness, to godliness. And it's our work to, to refine, to elevate, to purify. And each and every one of us is going through the various different places that God brings us in which we need to elevate. In the words of the Kabbalists, we're all here hunting sparks. There is sparks of holiness that are scattered all over the world, all over the globe, all over the universe. These are sparks that means points of energy that have coming from a very, very, very supernal, very high, lofty place. That have, for whatever reason, because of God's plan for creation, they have collapsed from this great godly place and have fallen down very low. And they become trapped in exile in the forces of klipa, klipa meaning the shells, that which is antithetical, into the hands of the wicked and the evil. They have these deposits of supernal energy, of godly sparks. And it's our work to extract them all over the world. Yaakov, being the father of the Jewish people, so he was the trailblazer for all of us. So he took on this work more than all of, than his parents because he's the one who goes to live in a hostile Gentile land. Not his father Avram and Yitzchak, they spend their lives in Eretz Yisrael. Mainly, Yaakov has a brief, I'm sorry, Avraham has a brief descent to Egypt, which that too was in order to elevate sparks, as we spoke a few weeks ago. The whole story of Lot, we discussed it earlier. But that was very brief. Yaakov has saying, Avram spent, I think, three months in Egypt. That's it. But Yaakov went down for 20 years. 
Yaakov is a symbol of the Jew in exile. He's going to exile. He's under the, uh, the he's in he's in the uh, domain of Lavan. As we said earlier, a very, very dark person. A very, 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 very dangerous human being. And Yaakov is, needs to elevate sparks. Now Lavan, wasn't, Lavan possessed a huge, huge treasure trove of sparks of holiness. He's not an ordinary figure, this Lavan. Because he was so corrupt, because he was so low, that's always a sign. The more uglier it looks... You need to know that something very, a very great diamond is hitting, is hiding. It's like the princess that is, that is being watched in the cave or whatever, and there's the dragon on the outside. So you know there is some great treasure over there. And that's the treasure. The treasure, Lavan has this fortune of, of sparks of holiness. What, do we, what, do we, what does he first of all possess? First of all, the, the girls, the mothers of the Jewish people. A soul as brilliant like Rachel. A soul as bright as our mother Leah. Bila and Zilpah, they were also very great people. Also part of the mothers, the matriarchs of the Jewish people. And then the 12 tribes. Even though they weren't physically alive, but they're contained in their mothers. So this is all part of Lavan's, Lavan's possession of sparks of holiness. Holy neshamas that are trapped in Haran, in this very dark place. In truth, all the Jewish people, all the souls of Israel, where are they? They're in the hands of Lavan. There's a lot to take out. Not only that, the sheep. We find that Yaakov takes the sheep of Lavan, the sheep, it says, particularly contained inside of them was incarnated very high souls. And when Yaakov spent 20 years nurturing those sheep, you know who those sheep were? Those were the tzaddikim of the future of all the generations. Who Yaakov was nurturing them, shepherding them, teaching them how to be leaders teaching them how to nurture the Jewish people. In particular, it says, this is what it says in Sfarim, that the Hasidic masters who come to give light to the Jewish people in the last 200, 250 years, 300 years of exile, in the darkest moments of exile, those neshamas of the Talmidim of the Balshemtov were contained in those, they were the sheep. And the Yismach Moshe was one of the great Hasidic Rebbes, said about himself, he knew all of the incarnations that he was here in this world. He said, the first time I was here was one of the sheep of Yaakov. I was Lovan's sheep and Yaakov was taking care. And he says he remembers even a song that Yaakov, Yaakov would play the flute. And he taught them songs. And he remembers the tune that Yaakov taught while um, to the, that he sang. I don't know if that, we have a tradition which song that was. But this is a, a nigun. So these were very, very high neshamas. And Yaakov had to save these neshamas, literally, from the forces of the klipa. And he did that. He was very successful. He emptied out everything from Lavan. He cleaned them out. The wives became his wives. And you see, in the end, they have a fight. 
Lavan says, the girls are mine, the boys are mine, everything you own is really mine. It's like the ancient anti-Semitic thing, that whatever the Jew has is really taken, uh, the Jew has stolen from, from the Gentile. So Lavan says, that all that is mine. But the Pasuk actually says, that Yaakov says, the words that Yaakov says to his, to his wives, um, he says, Vayatzel um, Elokim, and Hashem separated, as mikne avichem, your father's cattle, this is Pasuk Tes, Perak Lamed Aleph, chapter 31, verse 9, Hashem separated your father's cattle, Vayitten Li gave it to me. But what is it, the, the, the word the Pasuk uses is not Vayatzel, Vayit, Vayatzel, Vayatzel also means he saved. He saved the cattle. What does it mean he saved the cattle? Because these, these, are, these are sparks of holiness. These are powerful souls that are stuck in a, very, in a very, very dark place. So these souls are crying out. They need redemption. So Hashem literally saved the souls from Lavan and He gave him to Yaakov. So Yaakov does an, an, an incredible job in the extraction of these sparks of holiness. And then he's ready to leave when he feels he finished. But what Yaakov, what was unknown to Yaakov was that when he left, he cleaned Lavan out completely besides a few crumbs at the bottom of the barrel. There were a few more sparks of holiness that Yaakov did not take from Lavan. He left. And he left them behind. And that is the reason the Maggid says why Lavan gives chase after Yaakov. He's chasing after him to give him back the last few crumbs that Yaakov left. Lavan comes running after him, bringing it to Yaakov. Unbeknown to Lavan why he's running. You see, Lavan in his mind is, is running after him to take, to plunder, to steal, to take everything back. To kill out Yaakov and his family and take all the wealth back. But that's what he thinks. What he doesn't really realize is the real reason why he's chasing after Yaakov is to give him whatever leftovers there might still be, something left, deposits of holiness that are still there, he has to give that to Yaakov as well. And he was very successful, he gave it to him. What were these crumbs? So the Maggid says these were letters of holiness. Osiyosakadosha, holy letters. Spiritual letters, godly letters. Letters of the Torah. Letters of the Alephbeis that were stuck still by Lavan. Because part of what the Klippa has, the Klippa holds Nishamas, and Klippa can also hold pieces of the Torah. Letters. And Lavan needed to give this, and he gave it. What happened to those letters? Those letters now became part of the Torah. Which part of the Torah did it become, these letters? These letters are the very story of love on chasing after Yaakov. These le- very last, I don't know, let's say 25, 30 verses of Parshas Vayetze, that let's say has uh, 200 letters, 300 letters, I don't know how many letters there are that make up, I didn't count them. These letters were letters that were stuck that were left over. When Yaakov left, he left it by Lavan. Lavan comes and he gives it to him. And now these letters become part of the Torah. They are the narration of this chase. 
all the way to the final verse where Lavan kisses um, his family. All these were letters that Lavan needed to give now back to Yaakov, and he gave it to him. Once he gave it to him, Lavan goes back home, and Yaakov continues on his way. And the extraction was complete. Now this is, just from this, an incredible lesson. Just something to understand and appreciate. Here you have Lavan, a wicked man, pursuing Yaakov. His intentions are to harm him. His intentions are to massacre the family. Right? That's his intentions. But there is a much deeper thing going on. The lesson is when you have an anti-Semite running after you, you never know why he's really running after you. Of course you want to run for your life. But you never know. It might be running to give you something that you don't have. What does that mean in other words? What it really means is that everything that happens down here is really orchestrated by God. Everything comes from above. There's nothing in the world that just happens. So, um, and we know that from above, nothing bad comes down. Everything is good. Everything is good. It's a, it's a verse in Echa, we say it. From the mouth of the one on high, bad doesn't come out. As we know the rule, whenever anything happens to a person, you're supposed to say, this too is for good. We might not see the good, but everything has a good intention. So when you have a murderous love on chasing after Yaakov, it looks terrible, it looks really bad. What seems to be bad is that really... This too is coming not to destroy, to, 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 to break, to uh, think about it. This was, a, this was a force that was coming to threaten, to annihilate the Jewish people. This is something that was the, a, a, a force that wanted to destroy everything holy. It seemed to be the darkest thing. Yet what was really going on is it was really coming to contribute something, to add, to give and isn't this the most amazing story of Jewish history? You see, Judaism, holiness, godliness is here forever. It's undefeatable, it's unbreakable. It will be, and it will triumph over everything. From time to time, we're challenged with serious challenges. Sometimes very scary ones. But what turns out, every single time, there is some kind of a person, people, force, army, whatever it is, anti-Semite that wants to harm, hurt the Jewish people, in the end, what's the story a, a while later, 50, 100, 200 years later? It always ends up that it, that which was intended to be negative, sometimes we don't see it immediately, is really has, an, has a positivity to it. Let's take a look, the story of Hanukkah is coming up right now. The Greeks wanted to, wanted to nullify the Torah, wanted to contaminate everything holy and desecrate everything holy in Judaism. They came into the base of Israel on purpose, it contaminated the oil, forced the Jewish people away from religion, from observance, did whatever they can to contaminate their souls. And you know, we, we read about the story of Hanukkah, and we think it was, oh, it was a war, so quickly, and then Hanukkah. 
It lasted for over a hundred years of persecution. This wasn't like just a, a simple thing. I mean, the whole story was a long story. Truth is, I'm going to take that back. I'm not exactly sure how many years. But it was many, many years. It wasn't like it just, you know, the, it reached the point when it so was so bad that finally there was a revolt of the Hashminayim. But what happened with this, with this opposition? What do we have? What's left over from that whole Greek? Nothing. And what do the Jewish, Jewish people have? We have Hanukkah. We have an unbelievable holiday that has given us so much strength, so much power. How much hope did Hanukkah give to the Jewish people? What did Hanukkah give to the Jewish people during the Inquisition? What did Hanukkah give to the Jewish people in the concentration camps? When they lit a menorah and they saw a little bit of light is going to chase away all the darkness. What did Hanukkah do in the last 50 years when the thousands of Hanukkah menorahs lit public menorahs lit, lit all over in, in, in igniting a Jewish neshama, reminding him that he's a Jew. He or she is Jewish to seek out more Judaism. The Hanukkah menorah added so much. Where would Judaism be? We would never have survived the 2,000 years dark exile without Hanukkah. Who gave it to us? Who gave it to us? This came about through, through the Greeks. Same as the whole story with Purim. Haman wants to destroy the Jewish people. In the end, the happiest day in the Jewish calendar, Purim. All he did was he contributed to us another holiday. And so it is with every. Now this needs to be understood as the Jewish people as a whole, and in each and every one of us, individually as, as well. That when there is something that appears to be a force that's coming to destroy, it's coming to break, it's coming to interfere, it's coming to minimize us in any way, physically, spiritually, we have to always keep our mind and, and, and keep, an, keep this in our mind, that being that Hashem is behind everything, so what might seem to be a regression is really just a temporary step back for something really greater that's going to come out of it. Like you see in the story, Lovin's negative intentions are really something really good that is happening. But what we really need to understand over here, why is it this way? I mean, think about it. Yaakov spent 20 years doing his best to elevate, to, to extract everything that is extractable from Lavan. He tries his best. He does whatever he can. Why is it that he's not successful in taking everything? Some of it is left over, and then in the end, Lavan has to chase after him to give it to him. Why couldn't Yaakov just pick them up consciously on his own? Make that decision and elevate it, whatever needed to. If, if, if it was elevatable, Yaakov should have done it. I mean, it's not like Yaakov was in a rush. He spent 20 years over there. Obviously, he knew he's not, it's not over till it's over. When he was able to scan and take a look and say, I have nothing else over here anymore. The daughter, Rachel and Leah say that. They say, is there anything left in our father's house? Beautiful words, which has such deep spiritual meaning. They too know there's no sparks left, or at least they think there's no sparks left. And then, Lavan gives chase. Why is it that way? And this too is a very, very important and powerful lesson in our lives. And that is that there are two types of sparks. There are sparks of holiness that we can consciously decide to elevate. We can hunt them, we can reach for them. And then there are sparks of holiness that we cannot chase after them, they must chase after us. 
We don't have any power to extract them. It has to come to us unwillingly, even more, sometimes we're running away. And only as we, when we're running from them, they will chase after us. And that is a sign that these sparks are very, very deep and very, very high. Therefore, we don't have any choice. It's not a matter of our choice to choose. It's something that God throws on our plate. We never ask for it. And that's a sign of the deepest sparks. So how does it work, something like this? We find in mitzvahs, we also find a phenomenal idea. Mitzvahs are supposed to be done with free choice. We're not coerced to do any mitzvahs. We have mitzvahs. That's why mitzvahs weren't given to angels, because angels don't have free choice. If God says so, they must obey. We can choose. We choose. We want to put on tefillin, don't want to put on tefillin. We choose. We want to keep Shabbos, and don't want to keep Shabbos. We choose when they eat kosher or not kosher. So, a choice. Eat matzah or not eat matzah. You can decide not to go to a seder or not to eat the matzah. Of course, for most of us, it's unquestioned. It's unthinkable. But yet, it's a choice. You, you choose. But then there are mitzvahs that we can't choose. Uh, particularly, one mitzvah that is used as an example. There is a mitzvah called shikha. Make, the actual translation of the mitzvah means forgetting. Which is talking about a farmer who forgets when he's gathering the sheaves in his field and he, by mistake, drops or leaves over a bundle of grain on the ground. So if it's less than three bundles, I think the law is, if it's just one or two bundles, when he suddenly finishes and he goes back and he sees these leftover bundles, he's not allowed to return to pick them up. He has to leave them for the poor. Now that's a mitzvah that you, you don't consciously choose to do. Why? Because, okay, of course, there is a certain decision because you could choose to ignore the mitzvah and go pick up those, those leftover, bun- those dropped bundles. But that's the end. The very beginning of it is not like you can choose to initiate the mitzvah. Because the only way the mitzvah works is if you forgot it. And you can't intentionally forget. You can't be consciously forgetting. So forgetting is something that you forgot. And it's unwillingly. At least the mitzvah is initiated in an unwilling... You're not choosing. Like every other tzedakah, you choose to give. This is not a choice. You forgot. And then you have a mitzvah. So it is explained, what is the reason why there is a mitzvah that, it, that you can't choose, but it's like circumstances bring it that this is the way it is? And it is explained an interesting idea. That all mitzvahs originate very high in God's will. How many mitzvahs do we have? We have 613 commandments. We also have seven rabbinic commandments initiated by the rabbis. 613 plus 7 is 620. The Kabbalists tell us that 620 is the number of... 620 is the number equals the word keser. Keser means crown. Mitzvahs initiate in the sublime level called keser elion, the supernal crown of God. It's God's will. Wow. Shem wants the mitzvahs deeply. But it says an interesting idea. That in the crown itself, the Kabbalists say there is the external part of the crown and the internal part of the crown. Chitzoniyas HaKeser and Pnimiyas HaKeser. The external part of the crown means an external will. A will, you're choosing to want something. And the in part, internal part of the crown means it's not even a choice that you choose to want. It's just 
you have to want. This is what, this is who you are. It's, it's really rooted in, it's, it's, not, it's not that I, de- I decide that I want something. It, it's just me. So it says, all mitzvahs come from a choice. God chooses to want them. But then there are some mitzvahs that are rooted so deep. That root, now whatever, how, how you apply this above is hard to understand and it's not the time for this deep philosophical discussion. But it's almost like it's not God choosing consciously to want that mitzvah. It just is. It comes from the innermost of the crown. It's embedded in the divine essence. That's this mitzvah of shikha. It's com- it emanates in the most deepest level of God's essence. Because above, it's a place that's beyond conscious choice. That's why as we humans relate to it, the mitzvah, we encounter that mitzvah also not through our das, through our knowledge, through our choice making. It's a mitzvah that kind of enters in our life, not, not consulting whether we want it or not, it's just there. Because in its source, in the divine, it's so deep. That's why it's by us also like that. Is, is there any other mitzvah like that? It says the mitzvah of a king being a king. He can't choose to be a king because the rule is that when someone chases after honor, the honor chases away, runs away from him. In Judaism, the king has to be someone who does not want to be king. And the, a real melech doesn't want to be a king. And it's basically... they. Ch- the people force him to be a king. And then he accepts the kingdom. It's also a mitzvah that you come not by your choice. This is the idea. Just like there are mitzvahs that are... So what are we saying over here? Something that comes unintentionally is coming from a deeper place, a higher source. The same is with sparks of holiness. There are sparks of holiness that we can choose to elevate. And then there are sparks of holiness that come from somewhere so high that we can't reach for them consciously, deliberately. It's something that has to just come from a place beyond reason, beyond our choice. Yaakov Avinu, our father Yaakov, elevated whatever he can elevate, whatever he can choose. But these last few sparks were so deep and they were so high, he couldn't reach for them consciously. So they needed to come into his life without his choice. They chased, they came after him. And we think about this, this is really, because you realize the story of Yaakov is the story of each and every one of us. If we read a little deeper the Parsha, we see our soul journey. Yaakov's journey to Haran is the story of the soul descending into this world. Yaakov begins in his father's house in a beautiful place called Be'er Sheva. Be'er Sheva means, Be'er means the well of seven. That's referring to the lofty, supernal source of the soul. In the attributes of Malchus, the Shekhinah, that's called the well, the spring of seven, because the seven sefirot, the seven attributes flow into this Malchus. The Nishamas come from Be'er Sheva, from a very great place. And our souls go down to a place called Haran. Haran, besides being a city, Haran also means Haron, anger. It comes down to a place that angers God. Meaning, the natural state of this physical world is it's a world that angers, that stands in opposition to everything holy and everything godly. And who is the master? Who is the governor? Who runs the affairs of this world? A master deceptor, a liar, a cheater, a con artist. And that is love on Arami. Because that's what the nature of the physical world is. Beginning with our body. 
It's a liar. Physicality gives an appearance as if it's independent, as if it has nothing to do with anything that's not emanating from God. In the spiritual worlds, it is crystal clear, very, very, very sharply experienced, that every moment, everything is being generated by God. It didn't just happen. But in the physical world, we can speculate, we can talk. How old the world was, it's here already for billions of years, and as it, as it evolved through whatever, whatever we, that's the way the physical world gives off an appearance as if it just as, could just be a, a, a random accident. And there is no designer. And therefore, if there's no designer, then let's eat and drink and have a good time, because tomorrow we die, so today we'll have a lot of fun. That's the nature. That's, if you have to speak to your body, that's what your body tells you. That's what physical, physicality, that's what the material world says. We don't accept that because we have a soul. And a soul has a memory. It feels, it senses the purposefulness of all of, create, of existence. It recognizes that there is a purpose to everything. And everything is, nothing is, nothing is just random. Everything is directed, created by God, directed by God. So when the neshama comes down into the body, it has to elevate the sparks. What does that mean? It has to look for the purpose in every physical thing it encounters. Everything. Whether it's a pair of shoes, whether it's a car, whether it's a computer, whether it's your house, whether it's whatever it is that you're encountering, every event, you have to find something godly in there and that's why you're doing it. That's our work in elevating the world. But here is an interesting thing. There are times, and there are those areas in our lives that we make decisions and we choose. We can choose who we're going to marry. We can choose what school we're going to learn. We're going to choose what, we can choose what profession we want to follow. We can choose what kind of business, how we're going to make a living. We can choose where we're going to live, in which city we're going to live. These are choices. Sometimes, you know, circumstances are like kind of pushing us towards one thing, but say, a person is free to choose. Where do you want to live? Where do you want to, right? Choices. And that, what is supposed to be the motivation when we choose, if we're, if we're living our Jewish life, if we're in tune with our purpose, is that when we consider where we're going to live, it's not because the weather is nicer in Los Angeles, that's why we live over here. We have to ask ourselves, why am I living over here? What, is there, what does God benefit from me living over here? So maybe if the, what, the real choice of where you're going to live is going to be, where am I needed the most? Where can I contribute the most? What will be best for me raising my family? To inspire them and to be, what would be the best place? These are the considerations. That's how we elevate. But again, these are conscious choices. Right? So all we think, all, all aspects of our lives, as we choose, you choose which pair of shoes to buy. You choose what you're going to eat for dinner, chicken or blintzes. It's a choice. You'll choose. But then you have aspects that happen in your life in which you don't choose. Sometimes you find yourself being stuck somewhere and you didn't plan. Not only that, you're very aggravated that you're there. Your flight was canceled. You're supposed to be home already, but now you can't. Now you're stuck in this city for another day. The plane is on... It taxied away from the... It all happened to us. You end up sitting in frustration three hours, seat belted on, and you're not allowed to get up, you can't go anywhere, you're sitting on the plane because for whatever reason, can't take off. 
those extra three hours, you did not choose to sit in the plane. What it really means is you have to look around and see, what do I have to do over here? Who do I have to speak to? It might just be the person sitting right next to you. You might not have chosen. You would never have chosen to speak to that individual. It's not your type of person. They don't. It's not like you sat down next to this big rabbi that you want to study with them and learn. It's, you don't know who this is. Might be a person that you generally would try to like keep away from. But guess what? For an extra three hours, you're sitting right next to them. Is there something godly that you need to share with this individual? Maybe in the, in the course of a conversation, you can ignite, if they're Jewish for sure, and if they're not Jewish. What would Avram Avinu do if he's on the plane for an extra three hours and he has someone sitting next to him? He would try to make that person be aware of Something in life. So this is, this is, this is, these, what does it mean when things happen in our life that we are not looking for them, we don't want them, but yet God delivers it into our bag, onto our plate. This is a sign that this is something really big, something really, really great. And we should be very aware not to miss it and to open ourselves up to that spark that's begging for us to redeem it coming from a higher place and this is the general idea of what we take from this from this encounter but what is what is the real so let's go a little deeper into this and see how does this relate to the kiss that love and kisses yaakov at the uh, kisses his family at the end this spark of Lavan that has not been consciously searched out. But as we said earlier, the letters, the letters that Lavan, that, that, that Yaakov left by Lavan materialize in the story of Lavan's chase. So let's for one moment analyze who is Lavan. So there's no question and there's no doubt that Lavan is a, we said earlier, he's a very wicked guy. He's, a, he's, he's, he's not a good man. But yet the Torah has many layers. And as shocking as this may sound, there's no such a thing in this world that something that is begins as something negative, as something dark. Because only holiness is original. The unholy is just a distortion of something. Unholiness doesn't have... If unholiness would be original... That would mean that there is two gods. There is a holy God, like a Christian belief, and there is a Satan, a force that is separate. We Jews don't believe that. So if God is a source of everything, of light and of darkness, that means that darkness too must originate in Kedusha and holiness. So Lavan too has a holy source, as dark as he is. Not only does he have a holy source, but the source of Lavan is within holiness itself. Whoa! The source of love on is so high. That's why he turns out to be so low and such a crook. Because his source is incredible high. And it's hinted to in his name. The Kabbalists tell us that love on, the source of love on, in way back, if you trace him back, all the way, all the way to his quintessential origins, Lavan means whiteness. So Lavan comes from a lofty level called the supernal whiteness of God. 
Let's for one moment understand what does that mean. What does the supernal whiteness mean? When God, Hashem, relates to the world, so we know, we spoke about this many times, Hashem relates to the world through various different attributes. Because we couldn't handle His, His unfiltered, undefined, infinite light. Because we're finite. And we're all limited. So therefore, God, if He wants to relate to us, chose to use the medium of various different divine attributes. And those divine attributes are primarily chesed, three main attributes, ten attributes, but let's talk about three of them. Chesed, which is kindness, gavura, which is severity, teferis, which is beauty. These are the three channels. Okay, ha-gadol, ha-gibor, vahanora. Three channels through which godly light comes to the world. But we know that gadol, gibor, chesed, gavura, teferis, these are attributes. This is not God Himself. Hashem cannot be defined by any definitions. As the Zohar says, God is not from any of these midos. These are character traits. These are personality traits that God emanates from Himself. But they're not Him. He cannot be defined by any of these definitions. That's what we call the level of God Himself, His light, that is not yet defined by any definitions, that isn't colored or tainted with any color, whether blue or red. Red is gevura. Blue might be chesed or white. It's not this color, it's not that color. It's just pure, simple. That which is still a level of God that is not yet a composite, it's not made up of anything else. It just is pure divine, that's called lavan, whiteness. Because whiteness really means, I think in the sense of here, means really clear, the color, clear color. It's still colorless. It's still pre-color, pre-design, pre-definition. That's the supernal whiteness. And that's really, really, really where the origins of origins of this crook, low-life, lavan, soul, his energy originates. How does he end up from to be such a crook? From being, <laughs> from in its origins, being Hashem's pure infinite light? It didn't come directly. Even a billion gazillion channelings would never result in something like that from God. It comes through a matter of a shvira, a shattering, a breaking. Something broke. From that space, something broke and fell down. Lavan is a broken shard from the supernal whiteness. Where do we see this? This is like a wild, radical, Kabbalistic idea that seems not to have any, any source in any... The, can we find this in the revealed Torah? This is only something for the Kabbalists. So let me share with you a medrash, which really tells it to us. Because everything in the Torah has to... There's not such a thing as you know, Kabbalah just coming up with their own ideas. Everything is rooted in the, in the, the revealed. So over here in Medrash Rabbah, in today's parsha. It says when Yaakov arrives to Lavan's house, when Yaakov arrived to Lavan, to, to Haran, he meets the shepherds out in the field. And he says to them, Do you know Hayadatem as Lavan? Do you know Lavan? So the Medrash says, Rabbi Yaisi Barchanina Pasakarya Begolas. The Medrash says that this 
little dialogue between Yaakov and the shepherds has a has a allegoric meaning as well. When he asks them, my brothers, where are you from? This is referring to the Jews who are in exile. He's saying, my brothers, my fellow Jews, what are you doing outside the land of Israel? What brings you here? This is the first time Yaakov sees exiled Jews, Jews in the diaspora. He says to them, Achai, my brothers, where are you? What are you doing here? Why aren't you in the land of Israel? And they say, we're running away, we're running away from God's anger. Haron af, we've sinned, God is angry at us, and he kicked us out. So we're here. So, love, so Yaakov says to them, Hayadaitem es Lavan? Do you, do you know Lavan? Do you trust? Do you trust? Hear these words. Do you know Misha Asid Kasheleg? Do you know the one who is going to whiten your sins like snow? Wow. Hear that. Do you know who Lavan? Meaning, do you know that there is a great God who can forgive? So you're running away from God's anger. Don't run too far. Don't assimilate. Don't think that God has abandoned you. God will forgive you. Do you trust in the one? Do you know that there is someone up there who makes our sins white? That's what he means. Do you know Lavan? So what do you see from here from the Medrash? We're talking about Lavan Harami. That's a simple meaning. But the Medrash says that this Lavan, who is Lavan really? The one who whitens and forgives our sins. What does this mean? So you see from here that there's two lovans. There's a lovan down here and there's a lovan up there. And the lovan up there makes, makes, forgives our sins. When? On Yom Kippur. The Kohen Gadol, this supernal whiteness, it reveals itself only on Yom Kippur. This very lofty level of God. That's why we know when the high priest Kohen Gadol served in the base of English Yom Kippur, he didn't wear gold clothing, he only wore white clothing. We wear a white kittel, Jews have a minog. Why? The supernal whiteness that's revealed. The, the Torah is dressed in white. Everything is white on Yom Kippur. Let's understand why. Let's understand for one moment. Forgiveness, let's see, see where forgiveness comes from for one moment. All mitzvahs, we know that when, God forbid, if we do a sin... We know the chatz v'shalom, what do we do? We do tshuva, but we do repentance. But we're not, sometimes for certain sins, we can't be forgiven immediately. We have to wait until Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur will bring atonement. Why do you have to wait for Yom Kippur? So the idea is as follows. Let's understand this for a minute. The mitzvot, the commandments, the mitzvahs, both the positive mitzvahs, the prohibitive mitzvahs, are all related to divine manifestation. How God decides to emanate His light to the world. Every mitzvah is another channel. A channel through which godly flow, godly vitality, godly energy flows to the world. God forbid, it's like cables. You look at, look, look at the mitzvah as a bunch of wiring in which we wire ourselves to God. It's the cosmic wiring. And we wire ourselves up to holiness and we channel light. If God forbid someone violates a mitzvah, you're puncturing one of these wires. You're cutting, it's a blemish. It's causing some kind of an interruption in that flow. That's why you can't be forgiven. These wires are associated with what? With the attributes. Every mitzvah is associated with it. That's what the Arizal, the Kabbalists teach always the kavanot, the intentions of the mitzvah, different names. Because every mitzvah is associated with different, different emanations of God's light as, it, as God chooses to relate to the world. So that's all part of the spherot, the attributes. 
As long as we're dealing with the attributes, you can't fix it. Because if you're blemished, you're blemished. Good. Next time you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be more careful, but now you're blemished. What happens on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, Hashem doesn't relate to us through His attributes. On Yom Kippur, God peels away all the layers, all the external layers, and God reveals Himself. That's called the supernal whiteness. The level that's beyond all definition, that's beyond all color. Beyond, from that place, God says, I love you because I love you. You love me because you love me. It's not about this or about that. Let's repair the damage. From here we can fix everything. Because we're getting back to a place that's pre-definition. That's why we say Yom Kippur, we say, Lifnei Hashem, in front of God you will be purified. But the Kabbalists say it means, Lifnei doesn't mean in front, it means prior to God's name. Yutke Vavke, these are God's letters of God's name. On Yom Kippur, what's revealed, God peels away all the names. It's not His names, it's His very self. That's the whiteness. That's where forgiveness comes. And that reveals itself on Yom Kippur, so you have to wait till Yom Kippur. And that's Lavan. Lavan is associated in some weird way with this supernal whiteness. By the way, this will explain why he's a crook. It doesn't make any sense, but why is he a crook? So let's understand something. You see, all the deals that Lavan makes, he makes a deal with Yaakov, he says, the, the rule is like this, all speckled sheep will be yours. And then he says, nah, nah, I meant all spotted sheep. Then he says, nah, 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 I meant all ringle, ankled ringed sheep. No, I meant all the brown ones. No, I meant all the blue ones, whatever. All the various stuff, he keeps on changing. Simply, it's because he's a swindler, he's a liar, he's a, he's, he doesn't keep his word. But what's the root? Why is he doing that? Unbeknown to him, He's a low life. But you know why he's really doing it? Because at his core, core root of his energy, he comes from a level of God that pre, that's, that's pre any definition. It's not defined by this or by that. You see, the speckles and the, and the spots, these are all various different manifestations of divinity, of godly energies. Different manifestations. This manifestation, that manifestation. The orin sof, the infinite light, the supernal lightness, precedes this definition or that, this attribute or that attribute. That's why he's, the, the supernal lightness cannot be defined by this. You can't hold him down to anything because he's, he's so abstract. He's so, he so precedes everything or, or transcends everything. So you can't lock him down to this or lock him down to that. Now, in its source, it's, it's holy. It's God's essence that can't be defined by anything. When that comes down in this world, this level, this, the world can't relate to this level. So when it comes down over here, the spark falls down and it becomes a, a, a crook like Lavan who's cheating the system. He's going against what is. But really, the reason why he slips out of everything is because at his core, root, in a way that lahavdil, a billion havdalis, meaning of no separations, he's touching upon something of supernal purity. Now we'll understand the idea that Lavan, Lavan's kiss. I have a few minutes now just to finish this. This is a very rich idea. And this is as follows. You see, every day when we pray, Every day when we pray, as Jews, our work is to channel the flow of God's blessing to the world. That's what we're doing. Our, our service, our davening, we, don't, we have no clue what we're saying, but we're saying awesomely godly things. 
And then when we study Torah, when we do a mitzvah, we're channeling powerful lights, powerful energy flow from the most supreme, sublime places down into the creation. In general, we serve God by doing three things. Study Torah, mitzvah observance, and, and study Torah, mitzvah and prayer. Those are the three. Torah, avodah, gemilas, chasadim. Right? Three things the world stands. Torah. Which are primarily, they, rep- they represent the three attributes, the three main attributes. Torah is the, the middle attribute called teferes. Um, tzedakah that we do is chesed. And prayer is gevura. For whatever reason. Not going to get into that right now. Torah, avodah, gemilas, chasadim. We're channeling godly light into the world. That's why, interesting, when we daven, we say, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, and then we say, Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanora. What does that mean? God is great, that's Chesed. Gibor, he's strong. Vahanora, he's awesome. Why do we say, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov? Before? We should really start the opposite. We should say, Baruch Hashem, Elokeinu, Melech Olam. Who are you, God? Hakel Hagadol Agibar Vahanora, you're the strong one, you're the mighty one, and you're the awesome one. Who accepted you? Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. Why do we say Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov before Hagadol Agibar Vahanora? Hagadol Agibar Vahanora, these are descriptions of God Himself. Elokei Avram is talking about who believed in Him. That should come later. And the answer is here's this idea. If, if not for us, if not for Avram, Avram represents mitzvahs, kindness, if not for us emulating Yitzchak in prayer, if not for us generating the energy of Yaakov by studying Torah, because Yaakov studied Torah, as it says this week in the parasha, that he sat in the tents, he would study all the time, Yaakov is Torah, personification of Torah study. If not for Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, then God would not be Gadol, God would not be Gibor, and God would not be Nora. Why? Because as we said earlier, God infinitely transcends the attributes. Why should he lower himself down into the attributes? He's infinitely above the attributes. When we wake up every morning and study Torah and daven and do mitzvahs, give tzedakah, we're causing, we're, we're standing as Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, we're causing God to be Hagado, Hagibar, Vahanora. That's why we say first, Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, and then Hagkeil Hagado, Hagibar, Vahanora. So we need to do awesome things. Awesome things. The question is, how can us tiny little human beings possessing small, tiny, peepsqueak little bodies in terms of the great cosmic world, cosmos, how in the world can our service stimulate and bring down God's blessings? Hashem is so high. How can it stimulate God to lower Himself down from His infinite heights into the spherot, into the attributes? How? And the answer is, we can't do it on our own. God has to empower us first. Before we begin, and I hear this, this is very special. If this wouldn't be so special, I would not try to squeeze it in in the last few minutes. So here's the idea. We on our own would not be able to. We would not be able to stimulate anything. Because who are we that our actions should have such infinite repercussions? What happens is that God first imbues in, in, in us that power. It's called the Sarusa de Le'ela. Every day, every day, before we wake up in the morning, 
God downloads something into our soul, into our Jewish neshama. And that is, he empowers us that when we wake up in the morning and we begin doing mitzvahs, our mitzvahs will be cosmic. Our mitzvahs will be infinite. Our mitzvahs will be so super powerful and potent. Without Hashem putting that drop first into us, we would never be able to do it. And every day he does it from new. That's the meaning, I hear this well, when it says, Vayashkem Lavan Baboker. Lavan rises early in the morning. Lavan means the supernal Lavan. It means the infinite light rises early before we wake up. Vayanashek, and he kisses his children. God kisses every soul every day. When you kiss, you're putting some of your breath into the one that's being kissed. It's breath to breath. God puts his breath into us. Now our power is divine. Once we breathe that oxygen, when we're sleeping, we have no idea that this is happening. This is early, before we even wake up and say, Moida'ani, Vayash came love on Baboker, love on the supernal whiteness that's beyond the whole system, kisses his children, his daughters. I'm not going to get into why the two, what it means. But in general, it means God empowers the entire system. That when we wake up, and now when we will daven, do mitzvahs, and we will learn, our actions will have divine power to it to cause the flow of everything that's happening. That's the meaning of that kiss. But let's understand, this great idea, hear this, this great idea that this happens every morning, early, that that this happens, this concept and this empowerment was also buried in where? In Lavan. In the love on the crook. Yaakov needed to extract that from love. As we said earlier. This idea, this very concept. This is, but since this is something that God has to do on his own, we can't initiate it. Because what are we saying now? We're saying after God empowers us, then our, our avoda has power. But before God empowers us, we can't do anything. Who has to take the first step? To empower that our ser- Hashem has to do it first. It's a serusa deliela. It's an arousal from above that empowers us to be able to have power in our work. Oh, since this is something that's coming from God, that's the reason why Yaakov couldn't go fetch those sparks. Because part of this story is what the kiss, the great kiss, the great kiss is God's initiation. Hashem does that. We can't do that. It has to come from Hashem. He initiates it. That's why this idea could not have been a spark that Yaakov consciously takes. This had to be given to him from above. What happens? Lavan comes chasing after him. What does that mean? Deeper on the deeper meaning. Who is Lavan? Lavan down here is a crook. Lavan up there is God chasing after you. God giving you empowerment from above. Something that you could have never stimulated. And that's the meaning of this great spiritual godly kiss. That's why this is the end of that story. Yaakov elevates all the sparks of holiness, that which he consciously can take, and the deepest godliness that he can't take on his own that is given to him as a gift. May we merit. May we merit. We've already finished elevating all the sparks of holiness. That's what we were told. Now it's time to receive the final spark, which is the kiss that God will give. Love and alien to the Jewish people in giving us the Geula Shalem of the ultimate redemption. 
and when we will fulfill what says the last Pasuk, Yaakov Halach Ladarko. Yaakov is going to go on his way, that's to Yerushalayim, to the Beis HaMikdash, to the, to the Holy, to the, to the, to the Harabayas, to the Beis HaMikdash. And over there, um, we will fulfill our promise that we've promised Hashem that everything that He's given to us, Asaras, Ren we're going to give Hashem back. And the ultimate coming of Mashiach, may we merit to see all that great, to experience that right now. Shine, the 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 shine,